Welcome to Jammin' with Jason Mefford, a show where we discuss topics relevant to chief audit executives and professionals in audit, risk, and compliance. We discuss the technical and soft skills needed to navigate the minefields of organizations. You hear best practices and practical advice for helping you advance your career, and we'll even talk about music, mindfulness, and psychology, because we can. So sit back and relax while you listen to the number one podcast in the world for internal auditors, unscripted and unedited. Welcome to another edition of Jammin' with Jason. Hey, uh, excited to be back with you. And uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different uh, than some of the other ones that we have uh, had before. Uh, today, I want to talk a little bit about ineffective controls. Now, uh, controls seem to be an auditor's best friend. And, uh, you know, we're usually about uh, trying to make sure that the organization has the right controls, uh, that those controls are actually working effectively. And, uh, but today, I'm going to talk a little bit about how sometimes we can get over controlled. Uh, or end up having ineffective controls in our organization. And actually, ineffective uh, controls or having too many controls can actually have the opposite effect of what a normal control does. And so let me, let me just talk about that briefly, and then we'll kind of get into today's discussion. There's a thing in risk management called operational risk. And... Uh, Operational risk, what that relates to is it's actually the risks that you create by how you choose to do business. And so what we find is sometimes um, as organizations are putting certain processes in place, uh, they will implement certain controls or have to put controls in place because of the way that they're actually uh, doing something. Because as they're doing it, they're actually creating risk for themselves. And so they have to control the risk that they've created because of the process that they created. I know it sounds a little crazy, um, but this happens all the time. And so what I wanted to do today is actually share with you kind of a case study um, on this from, a, from an actual experience that I had this week with my bank. Okay. Now, to start off with, I need to give you a little bit of a background and kind of explain what actually happened, so then we can get into the discussion about the ineffective controls. And so, um, so here's, kind of, here's kind of what happened. I, uh, I moved to a new house about six or eight months ago, and one of the things that happens when you move is you start receiving a lot of different solicitations, um, often from... Uh, banks and other financial institutions for you to get a new loan of some kind. And so I started receiving lots of, um, of these messages and or, uh, letters, and usually they just end up in the trash can. Um, but what ended up happening is my bank, and uh, I'm actually going to keep their name confidential uh, uh, to, to kind of explain this, but will suffice it to say that this is one of the largest banks in the world. Okay, so this is, this is not a little mom and pop shop. This is actually a very sophisticated international bank um, that actually should know better. Uh, so I think it's a great case study in actually trying to explain 
uh, this, this concept today. So I started receiving all of these solicitations in the mail uh, from my bank to be able to get a new business uh, credit card. And, you know, the first five or 10 that came, I just threw in the garbage. And then finally, I looked at it and thought, well, you know, I could al- you can always use an extra credit card for my business. So I might as well fill it out because it's the bank that I use anyway. So if you're familiar with with these offers, usually they send out and it's, it's got your name and the business name on it. And there's a particular invitation code and link that you're supposed to go to. And the reason for that, you know, again, is there's some security and other things behind it. And so they can actually track uh, from a marketing perspective, who is actually responding uh, to these marketing solicitations. So I went out to the website, I logged in and, uh, and filled out my application. Now, like I said, this is the bank that I've actually been working with for probably 25 years. Um, All of my personal accounts and my business accounts are with this same bank. Uh, In fact, I I go down to my local branch probably two to three times a month. And uh, so they're very familiar with me. They know who I am and they have all of my information. So thought, okay, filled out the application, sent it in. And as I went to submit on the website, I got this weird message that said, uh, you know, your application needs to be reviewed further. So that was kind of the first red flag that I thought, well, something, uh, something is kind of weird here. But I thought, whatever, uh, let's see what actually happens. So a week or two later, I receive a letter in the mail uh, from the fraud department and uh, said that uh, I needed to, that they needed to have physical proof or proof of my physical address. Now, the reason for that is um, most of my addresses that I have, because I don't like people knowing where I physically live, uh, so I usually provide the post office box uh, that I use as my address for almost everything that I do. Now, with that said, the bank knows what my physical address is. And in fact, if I log in and look at my, in my account, it shows both my mailing address as my P.O. box and then also my physical address. So this is information that the bank already has, but for some reason, the fraud department flagged it and sent me a letter. Now, I'm guessing the reason for that is it's a different department. And so this, this different department, the credit card department, actually sent me Uh, this invitation to my physical address, but when I was putting information in, I also used my P.O. box. And so in the background, they said, hold it, these two addresses don't match. We need physical, we need proof uh, that Jason actually lives at this physical address. So they sent me this nice letter and uh, (coughs) tell me what kind of proof they need of my physical address. So one of the things that they listed out was a utility bill that showed my physical address. So I logged into my city, um, my, the city that I live in, I logged into their utility uh, system that sends me the bill and shows that I actually live at this physical address, that I'm paying water and sewer and trash and natural gas uh, for this particular house because this is where I live. So I went in and I printed off the most recent bill from my utility company. And I sent it into the address that they asked for. 
Well, all of a sudden, about two weeks later, I get another letter from the bank uh, asking me to, again, send in proof of my physical address. So at this point, I thought, hmm, something is, is funny, something is going on. And so I actually called the number uh, to try to find out what's going on because I had already sent in the information. So I called in and after being put on hold for a while, I ended up uh, talking to a nice lady in a call center somewhere around the world, where I don't know exactly, um, but got to the call center. And so of course, before she could talk to me, she needed to be able to prove who I was, okay? And a lot of companies are implementing, uh, you know, security uh, requirements, which is a good idea to make sure that they actually know who it is that they're talking to. Because there's been a lot of social engineering and other things that have been done over the years, and so they need to verify that they're in fact talking to me, Jason Nefford. And so usually they'll ask certain security questions or other things like that to be able to verify my identity. Because again, if you remember, I'm calling the bank that I have had a relationship with for 25 years. They have all of my information uh, about me, about all of my accounts in their systems. So I was quite surprised when the first thing that she said was that she needed to verify my identity by sending me a, a, a certain uh, a code to my cell phone. Now, that doesn't seem odd at all, that's normal, and again, the bank knows my cell phone number because it's in the records. What surprised me was when she asked me what my cell phone number was so that she could send me the code. Now, all of a sudden, the red flags went off in my mind because again, if I'm somebody trying to call and pretend to be Jason, what phone number do you think I'm gonna give you? I'm going to give you the number of the phone that's actually in my hand uh, and have you text that to me directly. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to give the bank a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here and hope that in the background, their system somehow matched the phone number that I gave them with the phone number in their system and that the person in the call center just couldn't see it. But that is a very ineffective control if it doesn't do that. Because effectively what you're doing is you are trying to determine identity access management by asking the person and them giving you all of the information. And so that is a completely ineffective control if, she's, if I'm giving her the number and she's then sending me a code to that number I have just given her and then repeat that back to her. So again, that is probably an ineffective control, and I was quite surprised, actually, that they did that. Now, the poor lady on the phone, she didn't have any idea. If it was somebody else, I would have explained more uh, about that. But like I said, was, was just very um, uh, concerned, actually, that that sort of a control would be put in, pro in, in place. It's something that's ineffective. It wastes my time. It wastes her time as well. Uh, for really not having any benefit. Okay, so that's kind of the first part um, as, as we're going through this. So um, that is, like I said, probably an ineffective control, one that should not even be in place. If you want to verify who I am, you should initiate and send the code 
to the cell phone of record, not ask me what my cell phone number is, and then send it to that particular number. So she verified, and of course, you know, when I, when I read back to her the message, it matched because she sent it directly to the phone number that I told her to provide it to. But at this point, we had, she had determined that I was supposedly who I said I was, and so she could open up my file and then actually look at what was going on. And so again, as I told you, I, I had sent in the utility bill, and so it's, it was surprising to me that I got sent the same message again as if they never received it. So I was calling to find out if they had received it. And in fact, they had received it, um, but here's where, where it, it kind of gets a little bit crazy, okay? Now, there was an old uh, reporter, or reporter that used to do a show named John Stossel, and uh, as part of his show, he, he had a saying, he would say, give me a break. Well, when I got through to this point, I felt like yelling, give me a break. And here's the reason why. Apparently, the invoice or the, uh, the utility bill that I sent, uh, at the top, it shows the name of the city where I live. And it's, you know, city utility billing services. And it showed my name and it showed the street address, but it did not show the city, state, and zip on the utility bill. Now, for anybody who's looking at it, you would know that it would be a, an address within that city, so by looking at the physical documents, you could tell uh, that that street address that I gave them was in that particular city. Okay, but it didn't match up with their particular compliance requirements. Now, here's the other thing, too, is I live at, I'm just making up a, a, an address here, 123 East Main Street. And so the way that that is normally put into the system using the U.S. Postal Code services, it would be 123, the letter E, which stands for East, and then Main an ST period for street. That's kind of the common U United Postal Service uh, address record. Now, again, the problem was this utility bill did not include East. It just had 123 Main Street, and it didn't have the city, it didn't have the state, it didn't have the zip. Now, any rational and logical person who looked at this utility bill would see the name of the city, and the utility bill services, the street address, and yes, it might be missing the east, but is that where I live? A normal, rational person would look at that and say, yes, Jason must live at 123 Main Street in this particular city because here's the proof of that. The problem was because it didn't correlate exactly with the way that I had put it into the application, which was based on the US Postal Service, they denied it and said that, well, that does not count as proof that that is where I actually live. So I had to go and find another utility bill that had the address exactly the way they wanted to see it and send it into them again. Now again, this is where I wanted to say, give me a break, right? Any normal, rational person would be able to look at that information and determine that it fulfilled the requirement of trying to figure out what my physical address was. 
Now, but that was again on top of the fact that within their records already, they knew where I lived because that was included in it. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is a lot of times we end up making uh, recommendations or suggestions for improving controls and trying to tighten things down in the organization. But what ends up happening instead is we're actually providing ineffective controls and those ineffective controls are in effect strangling your organization. Now, a lot of times people think, well, how can that be? If you're putting controls in place that waste time, that don't add value to, the under, to meeting the underlying objective, then you are wasting money and you are strangling your organization. It makes it more difficult for your organization to meet its objectives if you are putting roadblocks in the way of getting there. And so, you know, this is, this is one of those areas where, again, this is probably not what some of you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. So before you go out and actually try to, uh, you know, think of some best practice or you're looking at a particular area and decide that it has to be over-controlled, I want you to stop and think about it and think and see if what you are actually recommending makes sense. Does it make common sense? Does it actually help the organization achieve its objectives or does it make it more difficult for them to achieve their objective? Now, in my little incident right here, uh, you know, you may look at that and say, well, that's probably not that big of a deal. Um, you know, I had to, you know, fill out a little bit of uh, extra paperwork, send some things in, talk to somebody in the call center. Um, but let me tell you, you know, as, as you start to add this up, uh, the time that it took me on the phone with her, the time that it took me away from work and, and personal items to be able to do this amounted to probably a half an hour to an hour of time. Now, as the customer of this bank, was I mad? Of course I was mad. And that this whole experience has actually garnered bad will uh, with me and my bank. Now, is it enough that I'm going to switch banks? Probably not right now, but if I had been pissed off about something else already and this came, what, what might I have done? I might have actually closed out all of my accounts and moved to one of their competitors. That has a much bigger impact, okay, uh, that a lot of times we don't think about. But the more difficult, the more bureaucratic you make it to do business, uh, the, the, the more of a chance you have for having some of these other ramifications, uh, like making customers mad and them leaving. So again, in your, in, your, in your struggle to try to over control, what we end up doing often is we end up alienating or making mad our customers. We provide and, uh, certain processes that are actually difficult and for people to actually have to manage and do as a job, and we end up wasting a lot of time. Now again, the hour by myself is probably not a big deal, but when you start to, to, to calculate out and think, how many of these letters did they send out? How many of these letters re, you know, ended up in some sort of customer service call 
or a holdup or everything else. And, and the reality is the time to process this application went up significantly. Uh, and, and so again, you know, you have to think about that when you're thinking about uh, the, the underlying objective that you're trying to, re, to, um, to do as an organization. So again, if you're an auditor, before you make recommendations, first off, think about, is this control actually effective? Will it actually do what we need it to do? And so in, our, in the first example about the phone number, that is not an effective control. If you ask me what my phone number is and then you put it in the system and send me a code to that, I could still be anybody. So that control is not effective and should have actually not been put in place. But then you also have to think about again, is the control actually practical? Does it make sense for what we're trying to accomplish? And does it make it easier for us to achieve our objective? If it makes it harder for you to achieve your objective, then we shouldn't have the control. And so if you are out there trying to propose those type of controls to management, I can tell you, you're going to get pushback all the time. And if I was the manager, I would be pushing back as well. So I told you it was going to be a little bit of a different kind of an episode than normal, uh, but, but it's, it really is kind of a, a, a basic case study in, in ineffective controls at one of the largest banks in the world. Some mistakes that they're actually making uh, that they shouldn't be. Um, because again, it's uh, in this day and age, you don't need to be spending that kind of time and money uh, over a very minuscule uh, kind of thing. So with that, um, think again about before you make recommendations, whether or not the control is actually effective. Uh, do we need it? Will it help us get closer to our objectives? And uh, if so, go ahead and make the recommendation. If not, do your company a favor and not try to make them do more things that they don't need to do. Because right now, honestly, a lot of companies are literally being strangled with the amount of controls and compliance and other things that they need to do. And it's honestly a miracle that they're even making any money at all. So go forth and continue rocking the audit world, and I'll see you on a future episode. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Jamming with Jason. Keep on rocking in the audit world. Have a great rest of your day, and I'll catch you later on the next show. If you'd like to earn continuing professional education for listening to today's episode, head on over to C-Risk Academy at ondemand.criskacademy.com. And that's C as in the letter C, riskacademy.com. Not only do you get a CPE certificate, but you also will have access to the video version of today's show. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of the individuals and not of their respective organizations.